Um, thank you to Martin for leading us so helpfully, and uh, wasn't it wonderful to have a, uh, a confirmation of the answer to prayer at the end of that little prayer time? That's very special. So, here we are in Nehemiah chapter 2, and uh, this is the second of our series in this uh, little book, which in historical terms is placed at the back of the Old Testament. You wouldn't know it from looking in your Bible, where it's in the kind of middle of the Old Testament, but in historical terms, it's at the end of the Old Testament, something we'll bear in mind as we come to uh, look at the uh, context in a moment. But... um, Looking at a series of adults of different ages, I guess most of us, probably all of us, have been to school. Put your hand up if you liked history at school. I'm impressed. But not all the hands went up. Uh, And I'm sure there's a good reason for that. You might have had a really bad history teacher. But um, history, Henry Ford said, history is bunk. And history teaches us that history teaches us nothing. (laughs) But uh, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, In fact, we're going to learn a lot from history, hopefully, over the next few weeks. Let me take you back to the days of the glory of the British Empire. I was thinking about this the other day, um, that the British Empire, at one point, was very impressive indeed. And... um, Uh, It may be that uh, rule Britannia, um, Britain never shall be slaves, and that's basically because Britain enslaved most of the known world at that time. (laughs) But the British Empire at one point was very impressive. Uh, It even took in North America, big chunks of South Asia, including India, chunks of Africa uh, and other places. We ruled up to about a third of the known world. And, of course, Australia was down there in the southeast corner of the world, if you look at it in that, in that way. Uh, so British influence was huge. Now, comparing that with um, this point in the history of Israel, um, Israel was in a very bad place. The height of the... I don't think Israel ever, ever had a proper empire, but the height of the kingdom was at the time of David and Solomon. David's uh, son Solomon built that magnificent temple, which is described in earlier part of the Old Testament. And there's no doubt that at that time, the, the kingdom was at its height. The lavish budgets that the kings had to spend on the temple in those days were very impressive indeed. But at this point in the history, things are not... Uh, the same as in David's day or Solomon's day. In fact, things could barely be worse. Purely by chance, you could say that it's the hand of God upon us, um, and I'd like to believe that, but the leadership at Emmanuel Epson, suddenly, um, as we were thinking about uh, which books to, to, uh, to preach to the congregation uh, and for us to, to look at as, as a membership here, we were thinking about uh, which books we could use, and it purely by chance, it seemed to me anyway, that we were looking at uh, Esther, we were looking at Daniel, and now we're looking at Nehemiah. We didn't plan it that way at all. So, but we're in the book of Nehemiah. There's no doubt, in my mind anyway, that God has led us to this point in the historical 
um, uh, story, if you like, of Israel. Because Israel was in a poor place. They'd been taken into uh, captivity in waves. I'll come to that in a moment. And they were in such a serious condition that the capital city, Jerusalem, otherwise known as Zion, uh, was in a terrible state uh, when the Babylonians had come into the southern kingdom. Uh, sorry, the, the, yeah, the southern kingdom. They'd ransacked the city and the walls um, and the gates had been torn down to make sure that nobody could rebuild. So, at this point in the story, um, the Jews are starting to return from exile in Babylon. The first wave had gone back um, uh, and Ezra, the priest, had gone back with them with uh, Zerubbabel, the king. Uh, And they had been in Jerusalem uh, a short while, a few years. And you remember at the start of this story, some of Nehemiah's brothers had come from Jerusalem to tell him the story about how bad things were back in the capital city. And um, so 536... 50 years after the disaster of 586, about 50,000 had gone back. And then Ezra had gone back also in 457. And in uh, 444 BC, Ezra had returned, uh, sorry, Nehemiah had returned as the governor. And Nigel led us through chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 last week, which told us the story of how, as a senior civil servant, his brothers had come back and told him about the, the situation. He'd been cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, and he'd gone to the king. He prayed and he'd gone to the king and asked for the king's support in going back to rebuild the walls and gates of um, Jerusalem. And Artaxerxes, being the stepson of Queen Esther, see how these lovely historical linkages are made, stepson of the king uh, of the uh, of queen esther um, had not only sent him to do the job but given him a huge budget in order to do it so in historical terms that's where we are um, and if you as i say if you want to read the parallel account you can go to the book of ezra which has a slightly different emphasis but also fills in some of the gaps so that's your reading for this afternoon And just to say that, really, that things were still pretty bad. I mean, I I know probably the lowest point was when uh, the Babylonians had come and and wrenched everybody and taken them into Babylon. And things were just on the turn and people were going back to Jerusalem and starting to rebuild and so on. But let me illustrate that for you. Um... If you come to the barbecue at Martin and Sharon's house, 21st, I believe, 21st, if you come to uh, their house, you'll see that they have an, actually two houses. They have a lovely house which you go into in the, up the front drive and you go in through the porch and into uh, the hallway there and there's a lounge and a kitchen and various other rooms and you can go upstairs and see their rooms as well. But if you go through the house, you come to their second house. Second house is at the bottom or top of the garden, because the garden goes up, so I don't know whether it's the bottom or the top. But uh, you go to the second house, which is, in our terms, we would call a summer house. It's 
quite an impressive structure actually. We had our life group meeting actually inside. It's a it's a big summer house where you can see quite a number of people. This is all to look forward to for the barbecue twenty first. <laughs> and um, but when you compare those two houses, you can compare. Solomon's temple with the temple that was now being built in Jerusalem or that had been built already by Ezra. Um, if you go into Martin and Sharon's house, you have a, a normal house. It's a fairly impressive sized house on a very nice road in a very nice part of Epsom. But you go up to the, to the summer house at the back and if you want to compare the summer house, you're, you're thinking, well, there's the house over there, there's the summer house. Mm, it's, not, it's not great. I mean, you could probably live in it, but it hasn't got running water, it hasn't got electricity, I don't think. Oh, it's got electricity, yeah. So. <laughs> but, uh, but if you compared the two, you wouldn't be that impressed with the summer house. You could probably live in it during the summer, but in the winter it'd be a bit drafty. Well, it's a bit like that with Solomon's Temple, which had been lavish and glorious and had taken lots of time to build. The temple that was now being built was like a shed in comparison. That's how low things were back in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is also a, a study in leadership. And if you, if you read about Nehemiah's life, and certain sections of the book are, are clearly his own writings, and he's describing his own um, experience and his own feelings sometimes about what he was doing. It's a study in leadership, and what we're going to be doing today is just looking at some of the things that we can learn from Nehemiah's leadership. So back to the text, which was read for us by people I've played a nasty trick on. Um, no, I didn't really. But, um, but going back into chapter 2, if you started at verse 11, you'd see some of the things we're going to see about Nehemiah's leadership. So he didn't say how long it took him to get there, but he, he, goes to, he goes back to Jerusalem. And after staying there a few days, he sets out during the night with a few men. And on horseback, he goes uh, around the city, examining the walls and the gates. So by night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. The officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So he's gone back to Jerusalem with this pretty impressive budget for the rebuilding of the walls and the gates. But he can't do this by himself. It's quite, it's quite a decent size, the city, and in his heart, he wants to rebuild Jerusalem because at that time, even though the temple had been finished, um, there were various gangs uh, and tribes out in the hill country around Jerusalem who could just step over the walls and through the gates and ransack the city. The city, in effect, was still open to anybody who wanted to enter it. So he wants to go back and he wants to rebuild the walls uh, and the gates. And then we read that he gathers the leaders together. 
Up until that point, until he'd been round the city, he hadn't said anything. And then verse 17, I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. Now we can learn several things from this passage so far. And I just want to point out a couple of things which have relevance to us, particularly as a church in the 21st century in Epsom and Yule. The first is this. That godly leadership does not use spin, but brings the spiritual perspective. We're all fairly used, aren't we, now to hearing our our leaders, our political leaders uh, and others, uh, use spin when they're talking to us. When they want to um, say that things are, in fact, much better than they are, they use the right words and they select their facts and they interpret the situation um, in their usual way. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. Do you notice what he says? It's not very inspirational at the moment. He says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. And then he goes on to say, we will no longer be in disgrace. So this is a disgraceful situation. He doesn't pull any punches here. He tells the truth. We're in trouble. Jerusalem is in ruins. It cannot defend itself. And we're in disgrace. Verse 18, he goes on to tell them about the gracious hand of God upon him and what the king had said to me. So he's rehearsing what had happened to him in chapter 1. His brothers had come back. He'd, he'd been very upset with tears. And he'd gone and prayed. And then he'd gone back and asked King Artaxerxes to release him, to go back um, to Jerusalem. But he reported how the hand of God had been upon him. And what the king had said to me. This was no um, cult of personality here. So if you turn back to chapter 1, just very quickly, verses 8 and 9. Remember uh, the instruction you gave your, your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if you're exiled people are at the farthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. This is the way he prays to God, quoting God's promise to him and um, almost implicating himself in the answer to the prayer. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Again, he's still with the king back in Susa. King said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his life, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. He's already forming a plan in his mind. He's praying about it. He's asking the king about it. And he's implicating himself in the answer to the prayer. And then finally, verse 20 of chapter 2. When he's having to answer Sanballat the Horonite. We'll hear about them in a minute or two. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. You can see what he's 
what he's doing. In effect, he's saying, I'm very clear about what I've come to do. Will you get behind me and undertake this great task? He's been around the city. He's seen how bad things are. Will you get behind me and undertake this great task? He's setting the vision. This is what I understand leaders do. Uh, I was on a programme called Leaders for London once. It took me about 18 months to finish. And one of the great things you learn, uh, at least I learned at that time about leadership was the leader sets the vision. In other words, they've got a plan in mind, in their head, about what is needed. And uh, Nehemiah has a very clear plan. I've come to rebuild the walls and the gates. And I need you to do it. And so, in his own mind, this is a fulfilment of God's promise. We've seen that in chapter 1 and in parts of chapter 2. And he's setting the vision and he's saying in... uh, Chapter 2, verse 17. You see the trouble we're in. I also told them about the gracious hand of God, my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. So that's what he'd come to do. And he was very clear about it. But the the point I'm I'm trying to make here is that godly leadership doesn't use spin. He's telling the truth. He's telling them as it is, how bad things are. But he brings a spiritual perspective He says to them, I believe that God has had his hand upon me. And he tells them about what had happened to him in chapter 1 and why he's come. And he brings a spiritual perspective. It's very easy to be either encouraged or discouraged by political events. There's been quite a storm in this country, hasn't there, in the last few weeks about Brexit. I'm not sure that many people really thought it would happen. And actually, a lot of people have become quite fearful about what might happen if we leave the European community. But in fact, as the Christian church, we don't need to worry about any of that. We might end up poorer. The banks may crash. Our standard of living may drop substantially. But that's not the point at issue. And in fact, Nehemiah brings us a spiritual perspective um, Nehemiah led in a time of mixed political fortunes for Israel. Things were maybe slightly on the turn, but they were still pretty poor, pretty bad. And it's easy for us to be discouraged by political events. But Nehemiah brings us a spiritual perspective. God is not primarily interested in political events. He's interested in the welfare of his people. Let's go on to see something else. Um, that Nehemiah can tell us. The second thing is that godly leadership inspires action to build God's kingdom. What's the response of the people, the leaders that he's gathered together? They replied, let us start rebuilding. Which is such an encouragement, isn't it? There's no argument, particularly it was a very short meeting, in fact. <laughs> Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Nehemiah's heart must have been in his mouth, mustn't it, really, at that point. This is what I've come to do. I believe that the hand of God is upon me. Will you get behind me? Will you fulfil this great vision? And they said yes. And um, 
Notice Nehemiah, though, leads by consent. He doesn't browbeat or bully or threaten. He inspires. And almost in a moment, everybody is willing. They hadn't been willing before because they hadn't undertaken this great task, but now they were. It's almost though they needed Nehemiah to come and tell them what to do. And that's what he did. And they followed a very simple plan, which involved everybody in the community. So chapter 3. As we go counterclockwise around the city, which is what chapter 3 is. So for you, that's... Is it that direction? For me, it's that direction. But no, for you, it's that direction. Um, As you go counterclockwise around the city, and I know it's hard work reading chapter 3, and and even harder trying to make sense of it, we do find several things, and they're quite encouraging things. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They, They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. I've no idea what, where that is or what those towers... Um, but the important point there is, in fact, that it was the priests who were involved. Look at verse 17. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehem, son of Barney. Now, the Levites were the temple servants, if you like. They were the, the religious professionals who supported the priests. But they were involved as well. Look at verse 22. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding vision. Now, when the priesthood had been set up in Israel, it was made very clear that the priests were supported by the rest of the people of God. And they didn't have to get involved in anything else. It was their job simply to undertake the service of the people of God in the temple. But here they are rebuilding the walls. Even them. They could easily have said, nothing to do with me. This is your job. You're the people of God. I'm the religious professional. But they didn't. There's another group here who were involved that's slightly surprising. Look at verse 12. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Now, in that culture, women were tied to the home. Their uh, role in society was to marry and to have children and generally to support uh, the family. The last place you would have seen them was up um, with their trowel, uh, rebuilding a wall, just so countercultural, would not have happened. And yet, here they are. And uh, the, the most obvious thing that you see about this passage, look at verse 10 and then verse 23. Verse 10. Uh, adjoining this, Jediah, son of oh dear, Harumaf, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabniah, made repairs next to him. Look at uh, verse 23. Uh, Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house, and next to them, Azariah, son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Local people 
worked on their local section of the wall and gates. So you can see how it was actually a very simple plan. They sat down together, I'm sure, after their initial meeting and said, how are we going to do this? And the local people were made responsible for their local section of the wall. And that's how they did it. You may find, well, that's fairly obvious. But actually, yes, it's very important. So local people were involved in the repair of their local section of the wall and gate. But look at verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa was 11 miles south of Jerusalem. Um, it's where one of the great prophets of Israel came from. Can you name me that prophet? Amos. Came from Tekoa. And Tekoa was 11 miles. And I was trying to work this out in my mind. I reckon we're about 11 miles south of Wimbledon. That's about how far it was. In those days, you could get on your donkey and walk from Tekoa to Jerusalem, but it would take you the best part of the day. So these people probably lived with relatives during the two months that they spent rebuilding the wall, and they left their homes and their families, and they moved into Jerusalem, maybe laid down on a couch or a sofa, if they had sofas in those days, and they just kipped down. And for the two months that they were involved in repairing the wall, they came in and they did the work. So it's not only local people, it's people outside who are coming in to help with this great work. But, look at verse 5 also, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Um, great shame that not everybody was involved. There were certain people who said, no, it's not really my status to be doing that kind of manual work. I'm not going to get involved in that. Thank you very much. And this is one of the features I think church history would bear this out, that godly leadership does inspire many to serve, but not everybody's convinced. Not everybody wants to be involved uh, in service. And here's a question for you. As we think about uh, Emmanuel Epson, Jesus said um, he's going to build his kingdom, he's going to build his church. Will God's kingdom come if we don't build it? There's a theological question in there and there's a practical question in there. That's for you to discuss over the dinner table. Will God's kingdom come if we don't build it? All right, let's go on quickly. Third thing about godly leadership. Godly leadership will inevitably stir up opposition. Now, we started at chapter 2, verse 10. I did that quite deliberately because already Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, are involved. They heard about this. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. They didn't have the welfare of Israel at heart at all. They were quite happy with the status quo as it was, with the gates burned with fire and the walls broken down. They liked it like that. And so not only were they not going to be involved in the rebuilding, they were actively going to oppose it. You read about them in Ezra and you read about them later in Nehemiah. And in succeeding weeks, we will come to understand a little bit more about Sanballat and Tobiah. But simply to note this at the moment, 
that some of the opposition comes from sources close to the people of God. Now, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Tobiah was probably a local resident, and he was a convert to Judaism. His is a Jewish name, but he's described as an Ammonite. Now, Ammonites were historic enemies of the people of Israel. So although he'd taken on a Jewish name, his heart was still Ammonite. And he was going to be an active uh, rebel against God's will in um, rebuilding the walls and gates of Israel. And what do they do? Look at um, verse 19 of chapter 3, I think it is. No, chapter 2. Yeah. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed this. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Now, they thought that King Artaxerxes was quite happy for the city uh, of Jerusalem to stay in the, uh, in the condition that it was. It had been that way for some time. And it had been the policy of um, previous kings to leave it exactly as it was. But as Nigel mentioned last week, actually, there was a change of heart. Um, as uh, the empires changed, there was um, a change of heart and a change of policy because the tax returns from a, a relatively wealthy city like Jerusalem would have been virtually nil in this situation. But if you went back and rebuilt the city and restored the people to it, the tax returns would have come back to the empire. So you can see why it was actually in the empire's interest to rebuild the city. But they don't agree with this new change. They specialise in mocking and ridicule and they have a sideline in questioning the legality of kingdom work. And their aim is to discourage the work. Not only were they not going to be involved with it, but they were going to pour cold water on it as much as they could. And the discouragers make no reference to God or his kingdom. They discourage by asking political questions. And very often, the work of the church is discouraged by the people who want to ask political questions. Is it legal for you to be preaching the gospel? Is it right? Is it proper for you to go and evangelise and take your message to other countries? Is it the right thing? Is it right to go into the jungles of South America where these people have been quite happy in their culture um, and in their tribes and so on for centuries and centuries? Is it really right that you should go and take them your sectarian message? Well, yes, I mean, we believe that the kingdom of God is for everybody in the world. But there are always those who, who question the morality and the ethics and the policy of taking the gospel to every creature. And they are a great discouragement to the people of God. And they very often are found within the church. So we've nearly finished. I've just, just got a couple more observations. One is... There are lessons here, I think, for Emmanuel Epson. Look at verse 20. The God of heaven will give us success. 
This is what Nehemiah says to the mockers. The God of heaven will give us success. And I believe we're doing something significant in Epsom and Yule. Almost nobody outside of this room believes that. Almost nobody. They don't believe that anything significant is happening here this morning in Epsom and Yule. But we believe that something very significant is happening. We're stepping out in faith with a conviction that God will bless the preaching of his word. As God's word is preached week by week, as we seek to make Jesus known throughout Epsom and Yule, we believe that God is doing something significant and we trust that God will give the increase. It's a great risk starting a new church. But we believe that God is doing something significant here. Secondly, there's another thing here, a lesson for Emmanuel Epson. It's a really vital lesson. And that is, godly leadership must be servant-hearted. Look at verse 18 again. I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And if we start to lord it over people... As leaders, you have the duty and responsibility to call us out. Very important. And uh, what happens when godly leadership goes wrong is that people start to rely on other things other than the cross. It's only when godly leaders look to the cross that um, that godly leadership can be uh, effective and recognised. There's another thing here. Look at chapter 3 and the totality of it. And that is that we need to work together to build God's kingdom. We've kind of roughly talked in terms of phase 1 and phase 2. And we're entering phase 2 of uh, this little church. In that we're here, we're settling But now we need to reach out into the local community. It's much, much more difficult to do that and to win people for Christ in this area. But we will all be challenged to play our part. And if you look at God's community in Jerusalem, the striking thing about that work is that everybody got involved. I know there were one or two who didn't. But virtually everybody got involved. All the social strata of society, everybody was involved. And here's a question for you as we're challenged to play our part in building this small part of God's kingdom. What will your reaction be? How will you respond to this great challenge? They replied, let us start rebuilding. And one final observation. Who's the great leader in the Bible? And uh, if you look down through the history, you might be tempted to think, well, it's possibly... Abraham, Samuel maybe, David, he stands out head and shoulders above everybody else maybe. Moses, certainly he's up there. Um, Paul in the New Testament. The great leader in the Bible is Jesus Christ, isn't he? And he's often overlooked actually when you're talking about um, Christian leadership. And there's some great things that are born out here in Nehemiah which are true also of what Jesus Um, is and has done and the kind of leader he is in the way that we noticed about Nehemiah he doesn't compel or bully or threaten people he just simply lays out the vision the Lord Jesus doesn't do that either 
he lays down his life for the flock. Nehemiah had a very comfortable lifestyle back in Susa. Senior civil servant, he had the ear of the king, he probably had great wealth. His wardrobe would have been very impressive indeed. But he gave that up. He gave that up to go and identify with God's people and get involved in some really serious hard work. The Lord Jesus laid down his life for the flock and the cross, the gospel, are the wellspring of service. And yet he sends us out into the world, into mission. And he warns us also that there will be discouragement and opposition. In the same way that Nehemiah found, so we will find too that although we obey the, the great command to go and take the gospel to every creature, we will be discouraged from time to time. And there will be those who discourage us and there will be those who oppose us. But Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's given us the Holy Spirit, he's given us the gospel. Let us follow the great leader. One thing I have learnt in my secular career is that good leaders make you feel like you want to please them. I've had a couple of great leaders who've led me in the past. And as you do your daily work, you really feel as though you're doing it for that person. You want to please them. You want to make them satisfied with you. Is that how you feel about the Lord Jesus here as you serve him here? You want to please the Saviour. That's what we want to aim at, isn't it? That's, that should be the wellspring of our service. We want to please the Lord Jesus. And we need to serve together.